Who's ready to dive in to God's Word? Anybody out there ready to dive in? All right. Love it. Love the excitement around the Word. So Acts 13 and 14. So two chapters. One of the things that we'll do differently this morning is we, we won't stand and read because if I, if I had you stand and read all two chapters, somebody's going to lock their knees, pass out, and we'll have to call the fire department to help resuscitate you. So we, we don't want to do that this morning. But what we want to do is kind of really talk through the first missionary journey. Now, I was, as I was thinking about the first missionary journey, I, this image came to my mind. And does everybody know what this, this image is right here? What, what is that? That is a mile marker. Now, I know that we don't use mile markers today the way you probably did years ago because we have, you know, Siri and Google Maps and Waze and, and, and they tell us how far we are from our destination. But there are some moments where I still use mile markers and that's when I see a billboard of what I'm like craving for as I travel. So it might be a coffee, it might be a Chick-fil-A sandwich, but, but actually if there's a Popeye's anywhere around, I'm, I'm, I'm for Popeyes, not Chick-fil-A, so I'm not a heretic, I promise you. But anyways, I'll, I'll, see, I'll see one of those billboards and then I'll start counting the mile marker signs. I think right now, the, now, before, now before I put up the image, there, there is a destination as you travel right now, it's like the hottest destination to stop at while you're traveling. Do you know what that destination is? <laughs> So it is, it is, it is Bucky. So whenever you see a Bucky sign, you're counting down the mile markers. It's only 51 miles until I can potty like a, like a, anyway, anyways, uh, uh, here's some other signs that I saw about, about Bucky's uh, 542 miles. Like why? <laughs> it's like, what in the world? And then I, I saw this one too, uh, 797 miles. Like Lord have mercy, Bucky's like, I, I you know, listen, it, it's, it's a decent experience. I mean, but I don't like that many people in one place. Like, I, you know, I want to get in, get out, you know. So it is a destination tourist trap, I, I guess. But when you see a sign that says, you know, 797 miles, you know that in 796 mile markers, you will finally be there. So you're like counting down the mile markers. As the church, we are, we are entering into partnership with God who is on mission. So when the Lord saves us because we've repented of our sin, placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we join him on his mission. And from the very beginning, God has been on mission to create a people for himself. Now, where the redemption language comes in is that when he created Adam and Eve in his image, they rebelled and committed treason and therefore shattered the image of God. They were separated from God. Therefore, God now has to have this second iteration of his mission to redeem a people. And then when we see the development of various tribes, languages, and nations, now the mission takes a third iteration, and now God is on mission to redeem a people from all peoples, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people group. And so when we, when we participate in that mission, we are on now this, this, this road towards our final destination, which is the new city, Jerusalem. 
That's where we're headed. That, that's, that's the final destination. But we are joining God on his missional journey towards that final destination. And so here's the main point that I want to flesh out with you this morning. And it's this, traveling on the road of God's mission has mile markers that keep our ministry on mission. See, what we'll see in Acts 13 and 14, the very first missionary journey, we'll see experiential mile markers that Christians see as they partner with God on mission. And as long as we see these mile markers, then we can rest assured that we are on the road of God's mission. If you don't see, and this is the thing about the church, like, so Northland, if you're a Northlander, this message is for us because we want to make sure that we're seeing these mile markers because we want to partner with God on mission. If you are not a Northlander and you're, you're checking out church and you're trying to find the right church, I want you to know this is what we're all about as we partner with God on mission. If you are someone who does not know Jesus and you're just checking out, exploring Christianity, let me say this to you. This message is an incredible one to, to help you understand what the church should be about. And so with that, like I said, I'm not going to ask us to stand. We're just going to kind of uh, dive in. But before we kind of dive into the mile markers, I want to put a map up for you to show you the first missionary journey. And so here, here's the map. Now, just to kind of give you the context, Jerusalem is down here. That's where the church was birthed. And then, as we saw, uh, uh, the, the church at Antioch, it was one of the greatest churches of all time. It's up here. And this is the church that's going to send out Paul and Barnabas, and you can see like the boomerang, uh, the kind of the boomerang route that they take. So they go to all of this, Salamis, Patphos, you, you know, Perga, then they go to uh, uh, Antioch, Poseidon, Iconium, Derbe, Lystra, and so they make, they make their round there, and then they circle back around and head back to Antioch. This is what's so fascinating about, about this journey. In that period of time, Religions did not cross cultural boundaries to, to expand or to invite other tribes, nations, and tongues into their religion. The only thing at this point in time that the, the world would have known of in terms of this expansion would be like the expansion of the Roman Empire. And so the expansion of conquering. But the church will be sent out to have the expansion of the kingdom of God through invitation. And now this kingdom, this, this kingdom of God, it's already, it's this spiritual kingdom that will one day be consummated into this physical kingdom here on planet earth. So, so they're not being sent out to expand through conquering, but expand through invitation. That was radical in this day. And so these mile markers that we will see is what it looks like for a church to be on mission, what they will experience when they truly are on mission. So, so the first mile marker is, is this. The ministry will send people out on mission. So the first mile marker that we will experience if we're going to, if we're going to join God on mission is that we're going to send people out on that mission. Now, we, we see here in verse 2, while they, the church at Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is one of the reasons why we, we kind of placed our hands on the, the deacons and we're, we're kind of commissioning them to, to care for the body. So that's where we get this idea of laying on hands. It's kind of formalizing what God has told us, all right? And so verse four, the two of them, Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Notice the prominent role the Holy Spirit continues to play in the early church. That's the reason why we want to be a Holy Spirit empowered, a Holy Spirit filled church that the Spirit of God is in charge. The Spirit of God moves us, directs us, guides us, tells us like we want to be a church that is full of the Holy Spirit and we are waiting for Him to direct us. And that's what we see here. So the Holy Spirit is doing this. And so when, when it comes to Northland, how are we sending people out on mission? Well, first and foremost, if you are a Northlander, we want you to start thinking like a missionary. Missionaries aren't just professional missionaries. Missionaries are ordinary Christians who are being sent out every single day aware of what God might be doing around them, what God might be doing in their neighborhood, what God might be doing in their subdivision, what God might be doing in their family, what God might be doing in their vocation or their place of work. They, every single day, we want you to be missional, aware of God's movement around you and who might need the gospel. But some other ways here at Northland that we are sending people out. Uh, Short-term mission trips is one of the reasons why we have them is that this is an element of us being sent people that we want to send men and women throughout the globe to our partners on the ground, which is another way that we send people. We have long-term partnerships with missionaries and organizations who have been sent out to share and show the good news of King Jesus. But, but a couple of other uh, ways that we're, we're going to be sending people, we're in, develop, we're in the development stage right now, and I'm really excited about them. The, the first one is through microchurches. Uh, we have this home microchurch called the Ponce Inlet Home Church at Northland. And what we are doing right now is that we're meeting with them. We're creating the structure of what it means to be a church of the New Testament. Uh, but we're looking at these micro churches of people less than 50 to be sent out throughout the state of Florida to these kinds of neighborhoods and apartment complexes that we could establish a home micro church there And then another, another way that we're going to be sending people out in the next year to three is through international church planning. We're going to take the top 10 global cities and we're going to develop a strategy of how to send people there to plant an English-speaking church in that global city to use it as an embassy of the kingdom to reach the nations, to continue to reach the nations. And so you might be saying, well, why are we doing all that? Because a mile marker of a church on mission is to send people out on mission. Uh, now, but, but I, want, I, want, I want you to know this, though. Sending results in cost. It's going to cost us something. So when they sent Barnabas and Paul out, do you not think it, do you not think it cost the church at Antioch? I mean, these were two of their brightest leaders. 
And so now they're sending them out, and so they're going to feel that. They're like, oh my gosh, because they're not going to be able to FaceTime with Paul. You know, they're, they're not going to be able to email Paul. Uh, they're not going to be able to Zoom with Barnabas so that he can give them encouragement. No, they're, they're leaving. They're being sent out. And, and then it's going to cost in resources. So it's going to cost us in people and resources, finances. But don't miss this. Paying the cost of mission yields the fruit of multiplication. And then, if we don't, now don't miss this too, if we do not pay the cost of sending people out on mission, that church that fails to pay that cost eventually becomes complacent and they'll start shrinking. So, so if we don't pay the cost of sending, we'll become complacent and start shrinking. And that could be one of the reasons why many churches, the over the majority of churches in North America, they are shrinking and not growing because at some point they stopped sending people out on mission. So it's a mile marker. We got to see that experientially. The second mile marker that we see is that the ministry will strategize to advance the gospel the ministry will contextualize to share the gospel and the ministry will realize opposition to the gospel. So all one mile marker and they are connected. Now I'm getting ready to geek out because as many of you know, my PhD is in mission. So when you talk strategy, contextualization, and even opposition, I, I get a little geeky up here. This is like, a, this, is, this is my love language right here. So let me talk about strategy to advance the gospel. When you study Acts 13 and 14, and really when you study the book of Acts, you see all of these various strategies that the early church used to advance the gospel. Here, we see the strategy of going to cities. Why would they go to cities? Because those were densely populated centers that if you could reach the city, you would reach the remote, the rural areas. And then they also go to the synagogues. Now, the synagogues, they were where low-hanging fruit were. Now, here's the thing about synagogues, because I was trying to think about how, how, to, how to explain synagogues in the 21st century. So many of you, you've heard of one church in multiple locations. So that's what they would call satellite campuses where churches, they'll have one main church, but then they will have campuses. And so they'll explain that we're one church in multiple locations. Well, the, the campus to the church is the same thing as the synagogue was to the temple. So these synagogues were campuses, basically, of the temple back in Jerusalem, because after the dispersion of the Jews centuries ago, as they settled into these areas where, where they started to, to live, they developed and they established synagogues. Well, so now Paul and Barnabas, their strategy was to go to these synagogues in all of these cities, and then to to share with them the Old Testament and, the, and how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. Because again, they had the Old Testament scriptures, they're just going to reason with them to share how Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament was promising. So that's a strategy. Also, we see here in chapter 13 where Saul basically has this name change. Luke gives him this new name, but it's not really a new name because at that point in time, it wasn't unheard of for a Roman citizen to have at least three names. So why the shift from Saul to Paul? Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Gentile Roman name. 
Paul was a Roman citizen. And what you see in Acts 13 and 14 is the shift in Paul's ministry that he's going to move predominantly to Gentiles, which is why the shift. He's no longer going to be referred to as Saul, his Hebrew Jewish name. He's going to be referred to as Paul, his Gentile Roman name. Then you'll see that Paul performs miracles. And and these miracles are showing the inbreaking kingdom of God, but they become a strategy by the Holy Spirit to create a platform for the message of Jesus to be shared. Now, here at Northland, you might be asking, do we have any strategies here at Northland to advance the gospel? I am so glad that you asked that question. We absolutely do. One, we do want to go after low-hanging fruit. You say, well, what's low-hanging fruit? Well, anybody who grew up in church that no longer goes to church would be considered low-hanging fruit. Now, we also know that COVID did something to the church. It disrupted church attendance. Even though church attendance was on the decline, you know, COVID basically what I, what I call replenished the de-church population. So there's a lot of de-church people out there once again because of COVID. And so those are low-hanging fruit. People who are familiar with the Bible, people who have a theistic worldview would be a low-hanging fruit. And so so we definitely want to strategize to reach them, low-hanging fruit. But then also here at Northland, we utilize non-traditional ministries such as the CAC, that's our Community Arts Connection, that's our day program for adults with special needs or varying exceptionalities. We have Life Hope Child Care, which is our ministry to single moms. And so if they need help with child care, we come alongside of them. We also give them coaching and counseling. And then also one-to-one hope. These are non-traditional ministries that provide a platform, a strategy to advance the gospel. And we will continue to strategize in how we can create these non-traditional ministries to reach our community in, in the pursuit of advancing the gospel. And then we're developing strategies right now as, as, I, well, I say, as I speak, not technically as I speak, but we are developing strategies to engage apartments. Like what is our strategy? We just don't want to wing it. We want to strategize. What's our strategy to reaching the local schools here? What's our strategy to reaching our local government? And then what is our strategy to reach our local community? Like we want a strategy. So our missions arm, our commission arm. Right now, Pastor Gus and Matt, they are working with their team of developing strategies that will be able to be reproducible. And then we want people to know these are strategies, uh, that we have a Spanish ministry. So for for those whose heart language is Spanish, we got a ministry for you. Whose heart language is Portuguese, we have a ministry for you. To the deaf community, we have a ministry for you. If you have a a family member that has special needs, varying exceptionalities, we have access ministry just for you. These are strategies that create the platform to not only show the inbreaking kingdom of God, but to share the good news of King Jesus. We are also developing strategies right now to reach people that wouldn't come to a large building or a large church. So we are developing missional communities. So the way Jesus sent out the 70 or 72, based upon uh, whatever translation you have, uh, we, we are developing a strategy now where we would send out two individuals or two couples to a demographic who are far from Jesus that wouldn't normally come to a church building. Also, we are leveraging our property for community use. That is the reason why we have 
we have uh, had this joint venture created between the Ecclesial School and Northland. Like we don't own Ecclesial School. They're a separate organization. They are a Christian organization, but with a missional model. Like you don't have to be a Christian or a, you, you don't have to come from a Christian family to go to the Ecclesial School. So they have created this missional model. So it's going to have a, a, a community impact because people far from Jesus will be on our property. That's the reason why we have a relationship with the Central Florida Community Arts Organization. Again, this is not a Christian organization, but now we have a friendship with them because we want to turn our space into community property so that people who are far from God might know that there is a church, but more importantly, a God that cares for them. That's why I geek out because we're just not ending there. Like I plan on being here until the Lord takes me home and I love strategy because we see that in the scripture. Did you know that our God is a strategic God? I don't have time to go into it right now, but the promised land was strategic. It was a land that God gave his people, his monotheistic people that was in the center of the world among a polytheistic people. It was strategic. It was the major trade route of the day. So our God is a strategic God, which is why I geek out with strategy. But then contextualization is another part of that mile marker. So let me define contextualization for us. Contextualization is communicating the truth of God's word into the heart language of people that they may grasp who God is and what God has to say to them. You're contextualizing the message of the gospel. Now, I remember years ago, I had, I had some people that really didn't like the way I preached. This was years ago. And they're like, we, we, we hate that you, you bring in all of this other stuff like Bucky's and you know, you talk about songs, you know, and they're not even Christian songs and you, you, you like, just stick with preaching the word. Like that, that's all we want you to do. Stick with preaching. And I said, hang on. You, so you don't want me to contextualize. You just want me to preach the word. Do you realize that the word, particularly the new Testament is contextualized? because it was written in what we call Koine Greek, which was the street common language of the Roman Empire, not Jerusalem. So they're trying to put it in the heart language for the most people out there so that they could hear the word of God. And so that's the thing. We want to contextualize here. Now, what we see in, in these two passages is how Paul contextualized ministry. You'll see there's two, there's basically two sermons that Paul gives, one to a predominantly Jewish audience and one to a predominantly Gentile audience. And so let's look at his two different messages to two different people. Now, we see in Acts 13, this is to Jews. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, I'm one of you and you Gentiles who worship God. So you're, you're part of us, but, but there, there's still a distinction. Listen to me after, remove, you know, after removing Saul. Now, he's, if, you, if you study, because I've only picked a couple of verses out of here to kind of give you the context, but he's talking about the history of Israel. And so he says about how God removed King Saul. He made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so if, if you were here when we talked about King David months ago, God had established a covenant with David saying that through David's line, there would be the Messiah. And so, so, so what 
Paul is doing, he's getting ready to connect David to Jesus. So from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. So, so the message of salvation came first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Why? Because the Jews were God's chosen people to take this mission to this message to the ends of the earth. And, and so through, uh, you know, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Jesus executed. Now he's going to give some backdrop to Jesus's death and resurrection. When they had carried out all that was written about Jesus, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But, everybody say but. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So, so they, they killed Jesus and it was actually, and Paul's saying, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that the Messiah had to die. But you will also see that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. And then here's what he says. We tell you the good news. Everybody say good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So he's saying this, is that the law of Moses cannot save. The law of Moses has no power to save. The law of Moses is a school teacher, a tutor that points you to the fact that you need to be saved. So that's what he's telling the Jews. So notice there's a lot of scripture there. There's a lot of history there of the Jewish people, but he's centering their history around the Messiah, Jesus. But, but look at how Paul preaches to a predominantly Gentile audience. Here's what he says in Acts 14. Now, friends, why are you doing this? Now, so what they're doing, uh, the, the city, they've come together and they wanted to start sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas because they thought Paul was Hermes, one of the Greek gods, and thought Barnabas was Zeus. So they, they thought that they came down from Mount Olympus and they performed these miracles. And so they're like, man, we got to treat these gods right. So they start sacrificing to Paul and Barnabas. And that's why Paul says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human. Look, and they start tearing their clothes and like tickle us. We laugh, pinch us, we hurt. I mean, this is like, we're just human. We're, we're not Zeus, we're not Hermes. We are bringing you, what? We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, these worthless gods, these worthless idols to who? The living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So if you wanna know why Pastor Josh constantly goes back to Genesis is because we live in a post-Christian society where a lot of people, they don't know uh, the word the way the previous generation did. So I'm constantly going back to Genesis to root everything, the gospel 
and the truth of God's word in his creation. So that's the re- and then that's also the reason why I don't have us flip through so many different scriptures because there's so many different places I could go uh, to share the truth of what we see in, in passages like Acts 13 and 14. But I don't want us to constantly be flipping. I want us to stay on point because Paul stays on point to a predominantly non-Christian, non-Jewish audience, all right? So, so here's what he goes on to say. In the past, he let all the nations, this is God, go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. What's the testimony that God has not left without? God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. What Paul is saying is that your worthless gods, they're worthless because they're not real. But there is a God who is the one true God and anything good that you have experienced in your life is a testimony to the one true God that he actually exists. So the fact that you get rain to grow your crops, that's because of God. The fact uh, that you are filled with joy at times is because God in his common grace, he is declaring to you that he is real. Let me tell you about him. So, so, so if you take this contextualization and you look at these kind of two different like messages that Paul delivers, uh, you, you do have the same elements. There's bad news. So, so Jews, you got some bad news. The law can't save you. Gentiles, you got some bad news. Uh, you worship, you, the gods you worship, they're dead. Uh, they're not even dead. They're not even real. And, and then here's some good news though. Uh, there, there's a God who loves you. Uh, j- there's a God who actually has fulfilled the promises that he made to you by sending his son. And then you need to repent. You need, you need to leave your sin and you need to change your mind. You need to leave your worthless gods. You need to change your mind and you need to believe and therefore you need to receive. So bad news, good news, repent and receive. That's in both of these messages here at Northland. We practice contextualization, which is why we have age-appropriate ministries. I don't expect five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds to get this this kind of message. So that's why we have men and women who study the scriptures, who love Jesus, who spend a lot of time contextualizing the truth of God's word in the heart language of children. That's why we have student ministries. So we just don't do them because, oh, this is what everybody does. No, we we believe it's contextualization, that we're putting the truth of God's word, the message of salvation into the heart language of people that they might be able to grasp who God is and what he wants from their life. This is why I developed my preaching calendar the way I do. That's why I start out with the vision series at the beginning of the year. I turn to a book series for the, the kind of the mature Christian or the Christian that wants to go through book study. So that's why we're in the book of Acts. If you, if you remember in Easter, well, we we started a series called All Things New. That was an introductory. That was an introductory series about how Jesus through his death and resurrection makes all things new. Uh, I, I'm so excited about our cultural engagement series for the summer. So every summer from here on out, we'll have our cultural engagement series. In June, we'll have our A&E series, our arts and entertainment. 
This, this summer, we're doing Hamilton through the eyes of the gospel. And then in July, we'll do our TED series, Theological Educational Discourses. And so this year, we'll look at the primary doctrines that we believe here at Northland. And then in the fall, we'll have topical series like Iron Faith, a faith that goes the distance. We'll also look at a smaller book of the Bible, the book of Ruth, and look at divine love. We'll look at this topic, redeeming the word no. So a lot of you, you need to learn how to say no, and you haven't learned how. So in that series, you're going to learn, and then we'll have our Advent series. But all of those are contextualized to try to reach a vast array of people wherever they might be on their spiritual journey. So we have strategy, we have contextualization. Now let me say a word about opposition. So the low-hanging fruit here, the Jews, some of them, they had a hard heart. They were stubborn and as a result, they began to attack Paul and Barnabas and the church. Now, so let me say a word about opponents and opposition. The way people oppose others reveals a lot about the object of their faith. In other words, the way people oppose people who don't hold their faith or their set of beliefs, values, and views says a lot about their faith and the object of their faith, who their object is, what their object would do to those who hold a different belief system. Now, if you feel like you need to attack verbally or physically people who do not share the same faith as you, that reveals in large part that you have a faith or your faith in this object, it cannot defend itself. So, so in other words, if you feel like you've got to attack people verbally or physically, it actually reveals this, this belief that your own object of faith cannot defend itself or himself or herself. Because what the Jews, the Jews had already been counseled not to oppose the church. And they were counseled by this man named Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Listen to what Gamaliel says to Jews who did, who did want to persecute the Christians. Gamaliel says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these Christians. In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So, so listen, I, people who fight with vitriol and violence against Christians because of their faith, basically tip their hat and show their hand that the object of their faith and what they believe cannot stand up to the object and the objectives of the Christian faith. So here are some questions I want to offer up to the larger culture who would oppose the Christian faith in a vitriolic and a violent manner. Why are you so threatened, angry, and mean-spirited towards Christians who have a different faith than yours? Why? And then, isn't it contradictory to exclaim tolerance for all, but intolerance towards some? By force-feeding society your philosophy, ideology, beliefs, and values through various mediums, let's say like the public school system, and not allowing any other philosophy, ideology, belief, or value be taught. 
aren't you doing the very same thing you accused the church of doing in the past? And then, here's my final question. Are you set on becoming a monolithic culture, which is fixed uniformity around a single belief or idea, rather than allowing a pluralistic culture to exist where there, tr- there is true freedom of religion, true freedom of religion, and thus a marketplace of faith and ideas to exist and compete with one another? If, if you are dead set on on America becoming a monolithic culture, that's not very American, that's totalitarianism. So here's the thing about persecution. Here's the principle. Persecution exists when people have a weak faith and a weak mind. It's a lazy form of opposition that will threaten opponents rather than to let their faith, beliefs, and values compete with theirs which is why Christians, please listen to me. We are people who, yes, we have in some sense uh, uh, opponents because we have opposing, we have an opposing faith, an opposing belief system than theirs. But in our opposition in being an opponent, we do so with truth and grace. We don't force people to believe. We don't threaten people to believe. We don't fight people into believing. We love people towards believing. We care for people towards believing. We share with people towards believing. We reason with people towards believing. We simply invite people to consider. We invite people to change their minds, which is what repent means. We invite people to follow. And yes, I understand that the Christian message is an exclusive message, but it has an inclusive and broad message as wide as the world. It is for every person, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of socioeconomic status. It is for you, but it is an inclusive, exclusive message. And I understand throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, there have been moments where the church has forgotten this and they have acted outside the boundaries of the gospel. When we face opposition, church, because of our faith, here are a couple of thoughts. We don't renege on our faith. We don't fall away. We don't run away. We don't, we don't escape to the mountains and become hermits. But we don't acquiesce. We don't accommodate the differing beliefs and values of our opponents to somehow lessen the opposition that we would receive or the persecution that we would receive. We don't somehow lessen our beliefs so that we can enhance our relevancy in the world. If we do so, then we water down our faith. And that's what's going on in the 21st century. You water the Christian faith down enough, you don't have a Christian faith. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. We actually rejoice for suffering disgrace because of Jesus. And then here's just a reminder from my Christian brothers and sisters. We win. All right, the third mile marker, and I know, I, I, I see the time. I'm gonna give you these three mile markers and then I'm done, the last three right here. Mile marker number three, the ministry will attract people that are hungry for the word of God and will see people receive and be transformed by the gospel of God. Like what you see in Acts 13 and 14 is that, man, I'm, I'm telling you, people are hungry for God's word. 
And the reason why they're hungry is because their gods cannot fulfill. Their gods cannot satisfy. That's what Paul tells them. Your gods can't do this because they're not real. But I understand the 21st century, you know, we don't have Zeus, we don't have Hermes, we don't have Nike, we don't have, we don't have any of those gods, but we do still have the God of money. But I promise you this, money promises that it will fulfill you and satisfy you, but you know that's not true. And it's in notoriety or popularity. It promises to fully satisfy you, to fulfill you, but it really doesn't. Relationships, marriage, promises to fully satisfy you, but, but, but they don't. Only God can. Look, look at some of these scriptures that we see in these passages. This is pretty cool. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer. That's pretty cool. Uh, not really, but and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, an intelligent man. So he's in the political sphere, and here's what he, he does. He sends for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear what? The word of God. And then as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's why I hate North and we will always be a church of the word. Like, listen, we don't need to be entertained more. We don't need to have our, our ears tickled more. No, we need to hear from God. I need to hear from God. You need to hear from God. We need to hear from God. That's why I will never shy away from preaching the whole counsel of God's word. We need to hear from him. He Only he can fully satisfy. <laughs> if we don't preach the word, then we give nothing, we, we, we give nothing for people to feast on. And then look what happens when, when the word is proclaimed. Oh, so good. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And that Iconium and Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. If we will just devote ourselves to the word of God, God will produce fruit and transformed lives and uh and already this year we've had over 70 people publicly profess their faith through believers baptism and as we saw last week 27 first through fifth graders they turned to jesus as their lord and savior let that never grow old here all right the the fourth mile marker the ministry will seek to establish healthy churches. Oh, I think we all would agree, if you've been in church any amount of time, that there are a lot of unhealthy churches. So you probably are wondering what constitutes a healthy church. You wanna know what constitutes a healthy church? Here it is. Here's what constitutes a healthy church. A group of believers led by godly leaders who remain true to the faith and thus remain committed to one another. Listen, like... like We'll never remain committed to one another unless we remain committed to the true faith. And you might be asking, what's the true faith? Well, let me put up this framework again for you. Here's that framework. Worldview, the picture of the world. We're gonna remain true to the Bible. It gives us the picture of the world, how we see the world. Uh, we're going to remain true to the mission. God is on mission to redeem a people from all peoples to reflect his glory in all spheres of life. That's what we believe the purpose of life is. The center of our faith is Jesus. Everything revolves around Jesus. Everything orbits around King Jesus. And then ethics and pattern of behavior. This is how we live. This is how we move. 
that this is how we view marriage. This is how we view relationships. This is how we view sex. This is how we view vocation. This is how we ethically behave and live in the world and then practices of our faith. It's why we pray. It's why we read the scriptures. It's why we give ourselves to silence and solitude. It's why we are in community. It's why we worship through song. It's why we worship through receiving God's word. It's the practices of faith. So if you remain true to the totality of the Christian faith, you will remain true to one another. But how do we do that? Okay, here's how we do it. Three things that we see in Acts chapter 14 as Paul made his rounds again, strengthening the churches. We got to exercise our faith. We got to encourage people in the faith and we have to enlist leaders to help us exercise our faith and encourage us to remain in our faith, which is why I love how we commission deacons today. We're enlisting leaders to help us exercise, to grow in our faith. Because that's the thing about exercise, like physical exercise. When, when, when you run, you bike, you swim, when you do some weightlifting, which I'm doing these days, like you, you grow, you actually become stronger. But, we're, but we need to do that with our faith. Well, how do we do that? Well, you need to wait till Iron Faith comes out, that series in the fall. I tell you how to do it. But then encouragement, some, so there's gonna be times every single one of us will go through a valley, will go through a tough season, a stormy season. And we need brothers and sisters that walk alongside of us, encouraging us, don't throw in the towel, don't give up. You can do it, I'm here with you. And so, so healthy church. And then the last mile marker, the ministry will cons- consist of joy and celebration. Um, the very end of chapter 13, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The end of chapter 14, as Paul and Barnabas made their way back to Antioch, they reported all that God did in and through them and thus celebrated what, what God was doing in the world. I want us to be a church full of joy. Not because I want that, because that is a mile marker that we are on mission because we're keeping the main thing, the main thing, and we're not majoring on the minors, but majoring on the majors. And so if we see these mile markers, which church, let me, let me just celebrate the fact that in, in about 14, 15 months of me being here, I see every mile marker, but we're just scratching the surface of what God wants to do in and through Northland. But let us make sure that as we move on this journey of God's mission, that these mile markers stay present. Because if they aren't present, that means somewhere in some way, we've gotten off track of God's mission. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need your spirit moving in and through us for these mile markers to become a reality a continued reality. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we uh, would just rally around your glory and your renown as we participate with you on mission. And that you would do far more abundantly than we could ever ask, think, or imagine because we have partnered with you, yielded ourselves, surrendered ourselves to the move of the Spirit that we might see these miraculous things take place in and through us because of you we love you thank you so much for first loving us and it's in your name we pray and all god's people said amen will you stand with us as we close